welcome to this, the Customer Experience Superheroes podcast series. Uh, my name's Christopher Brooks. This series is sponsored by Clientship. And you join us in Series 2, um, Episode 3, where we are going to be talking data. We're going to be talking GDPR. We're going to be talking permissions. We're even going to be talking SARS. Uh, we'll come on to that later. Um, I'm delighted to invite um, Simon Hinks, who is a specialist GDPR consultant. And uh, in this podcast, you'll be hearing what Simon had to say about the role GDPR and privacy with customers' data has in the world of customer experience. Okay, so as I said, we're here uh, with Simon Hinks from uh, Parallel Marketing. So welcome to the Customer Experience Superheroes podcast, Simon. Thanks for having me along, Christopher. Oh, you're very welcome. Now, um, we're, we're delighted you could join us. We're going to talk about an aspect of customer experience which probably doesn't get spoken about often enough and is part of the governance uh, area of customer experience. So we're going to talk about GDPR. So if you don't mind, um, I'm sure uh, most of our audience would, would know what we're going to be talking about, but we do attract an international audience. So if I say GDPR or consent, um, wh- what, what is that? I mean, what, what is it that you actually do as a, as a CX superhero out there? What is your role? Right. Thanks, Chris. Uh, my role, um, I help businesses become compliant with the regulation um, if uh-huh. they're not already. And if they are compliant, I can help train their staff to ensure that they remain compliant uh, because the ICO has recognised, sorry, the ICO is the the Information Commissioner's Office. Yep. And this is the the department that that looks after the regulation. Um, They've deemed that the regulation should be set within the DNA of a business. So it's a living, breathing thing as opposed to a folder that's put on a shelf in the back of the office. Okay, and and you know GDPR um, used to be the Data Protection Act. What 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 is the difference? But what does GDPR stand for? And what what is the difference between that and what we knew was the uh, Data Protection Act? So in '98 you had the Data Protection Act. Anyone who did direct marketing would have a vague idea of what it meant, um, but uh, most people ignored it. Uh, there weren't many um, instances where companies were being fined for misusing data. So the European government in 2016 uh, realised that they had to update the regulation. And so 2018, they launched a general data protection uh, regulation, which is an EU uh, regulation, which means it applies to 28 of, well, 27 now, of the EU countries and there are some elements of the regulation which are consistent across all the countries and then each country is allowed to flex some of it depending upon its uh, its people so for example the um, the age when you're recognized as a child versus an adult so is that what is that now is that is it 13 am I right in that yeah, so 13 here, um, places like Greece, uh, I think it's 16 now. Um, it, it's, it, can be, it can be different from country to country. And, and the reason uh, we've done it is because technology has uh, basically sped ahead and the regulation has not really kept up with it. So that's why they wanted something um, which was launched in 2018, fresh and relevant 
and this is why you see a lot of activity in the press mm-hmm. with the uh, the technology companies like Facebook and Google being taken to court. Sure. Because the regulation is just not being adhered to by, uh-huh. by these organisations. Okay, so so it's fair, fair to say that um, you know whilst the spirit of the Data Protection Act was something that um, w- was was needed, the reality was because technology advanced, it was just full of holes, I guess. And GDPR is an attempt to bring that up to date. What does GDPR stand for? General Data Protection Regulation. Okay, and it's uh, is, is it European wide or is it just uh, UK based? Now that we're out of the EU, mm-hmm. um, the UK has its own version of GDPR in its UK law, so it's not going anywhere. The rest of Europe has their versions of GDPR. Um, we are now seen as a country outside of the EU, um, and for the next 12 months, we are seen as a country of, they call it adequacy. So we have the right kind of data protocols in place to allow data to flow from the UK to Europe. But bearing in mind also that GDPR applies to EU citizens wherever they may be within the world. It also applies to, to companies who sell products and services into the EU as well. So um, America uh, has had its um, harbour, which was a a watered-down version of a GDPR. Mm-hmm. Um, that was to ensure that um, we could move data in and out of the states, but they are now building their own version of GDPR by state. You've got California, which came out with something called the CCPA. And there's one big element in all this, Chris, which I think is important for for people and also for your industry. It's, it's, it's all about trust. Mm-hmm. And trust is a key word in all this because the public, you and I, had very little trust when it came to some of these large organisations. So, yeah. for example, if we gave our name to a social media company, we would see things happen to our name and our information. And what I mean by that, if we went online and we looked at a particular web page, um, and then we started looking at other web pages. We would see that it knew who we were, and it would it would put up ads yeah. that it thought were relevant to us. It was you could tell we were being tracked yeah. through the internet, and all this created a feeling of distrust with these large organisations. And so GDPR has been put in place to give people the ability to say to a company. I don't like what you're doing with my data. I want you to stop doing it. I want you to tell me what you've got on me and I want you to delete it as well. Okay. But on the flip side of that, Chris, for customer experience, is that if a company is saying to a customer, we are compliant with GDPR, that customer should feel Safe more empathetic towards yeah. that business, yeah. more so, trustworthy. So I think um, certainly... Uh, practicing customer experience it becomes a topic that you sort of assume that the compliance or the IT team have taken care of but I think that there's probably individuals out there who are running CX programs who are probably less 
conscious and need to be more aware of some of the initiatives that they're running could well be flaunting or even breaking the GDPR. So I, I wonder if I could put some scenarios to you. You can kind of give me an idea of what sort of protection should be in place and whether you think organisations should just rethink what they're doing. Is that all right? Yeah, it's fine. Fine way. So, so quite often, you know, you get um, a customer will visit your website, um, not even a customer, a guest would look at your website and you'd pop up and say, thanks very much. Um, hope you're interested. Can we send you something on that? Uh, give us your email address. So there's not really been much of an interaction there, but the customer has said, yes, I was I've got a great big website here that I'm looking at. Um, I was actually looking at, I don't know, a promotion for uh, um, a holiday. Um, And this is uh, an airline company, let's say, for instance. And they pop up and uh, in the box it says, you know, we'd like to send you more information. They don't know that I've been eyeballing the, um, the holiday part, the hotel or the holiday part of it. So... Can they then send me information um, on whatever was on that website because they can't see what I'm looking at or not looking at? In your example, uh, there should be some fields that need populating with name, address and email address. And there has to be a consent statement that explains to you why I'm asking for this data and what am I going to do with this data. Sure. So... It should say, um, um, you know, by ticking this box, we will send you some information about a holiday. And the box below, if you tick that, we can send you some information about airlines. That is consent. Now, they shouldn't be sending you information about airlines necessarily. It's a bit grey in the sense that there are six reasons, lawful reasons for processing data. Yeah. So when you're going on websites and you're asking for information, they will, in most cases, use consent. You then know where you stand and you know what you're asking for, and that's what you'll get. Yeah. Um, but there is something called legitimate interest. And legitimate interest is when you buy a product or service, so say you buy a pair of trousers. Yeah. And you give them your your details because you bought it online. Now, you would expect them to write to you about offers to do with trousers. Yep. Because, and, and that's, and so their reason for writing to you is it's legitimate interest. Now, you wouldn't expect them to write to you about uh, car hire. So there are certain different uh, legal reasons for, for communicating with you. And that's always been the challenge for marketeers. And it'll be the challenge for, for customer experience people as well. It's understanding what's the legal reason for me to communicate with you. Consent is good, um, but bearing in mind, consent gives the option to the person to consent in and out. So you don't have any control on that. It's up no. to the individual whether they want to, whether they want you to write to them or not. So the control is with the customer. So that's really interesting, Simon. If I take um, a classic case, so in customer experience, what we try and advise, I think, as a as a, as a, a collective um, uh, clients to do is to not focus all of your attention around the transaction. Don't put all your, you know, don't make the payment transaction what it's all about. Go broader than that. So some organisations might say, well, it's in our DNA. We're a very 
giving company um we actually do an awful lot of work for charities and we, we we support communities we'd like to tell our customers about the work that we're doing in those particular areas because they will think more favorably of us and it also helps them to appreciate they're associated with a good company now if the actual purchase was let's say it was a uh, trousers yeah. again are we stretching what legitimate interest is here or does it comfortably come under the banner of that organization Right, that's a really good example. So there's another document that sits on the side of this called uh, the Privacy Policy, or yep. Privacy Notice. And this document, you'll find them on websites, talks about what they do with the data, what you do, what the company's going to do with the data, how long they're going to keep it for, whether it goes abroad. And in these policy documents, you can talk about... Um, uh, you can give people the option to opt in to receive information about the um, what the charity is doing. It's been a big issue, Chris, to be perfectly fair, for charities and fundraising in that um, a lot of them have tried to use legitimate interests uh, to go back to people. And it's not, it's not, it, it, it's legitimate interest for charities is good but what they've realized is that they really need consent yeah uh, because consent gives them the option to talk about all the other things yeah they want to talk about as a charity yeah okay and, and in your consent statement you know you can talk about by ticking this box we will send you information about what we're up to in different countries you know our, our policies on this We'll send you a newsletter every quarter. Yeah. Um, so you can put it all in a consent statement. And so people know what they're going to be getting from you. And also, to be fair, if you don't tick the box, you know that that, that person hasn't got the level of empathy that you're looking for. Sure, sure. So, I mean, what what we're talking about in this context, I'm, I think I'm right in understanding it, is marketing. So if it was service related, therefore it's relating to the transaction that you have with that organisation, that's that's OK, isn't it? So an example would be if we have decided we've produced an app um, to go alongside your online banking, um, which we think has got some really be a much better experience for you. It's easier to work with. You can get access easier um, now that wouldn't be deemed as being marketing or, or would it i mean that's a service improvement isn't it yeah service improvements are fine so this is where you get into this what's a service improvement but most people understand um at the end of the day and and yes you're right they, they don't need to consent to that they would use legitimate interests and, and that, that uh, would well, actually no they would use something else they would use the law of contract when you buy something a product or service and you sign a contract there are certain things that you would expect to happen in fulfilling that contract. Yeah. So, you know, you bought your pair of trousers, so you would expect to receive those pair of trousers. Yeah. If you've got an online banking app, you would expect to receive notices about whether your product's going to be updated or shut down for the afternoon. Yeah. All those kind of services. Yeah. Kind of messages. Okay, so um, I guess it gets a little bit grey if on that app, then I see within it, although I've got a current account with you, lots of details about savings products, etc., because it's just held in that app. Or, or am I, as the company, expected to switch that stuff off because it's not in the the contractual agreement that we have? If it's not in your agreement, yeah, you shouldn't really be seeing that without without consent. 
Um, so yeah, you should, they, they should really have that have that switched off. If you were buying an app with a savings element on it, they should really work into their policy the fact that this this app has other capabilities, right? Which which you can switch on and off. So it's, it seems to me, I mean, one of the activities that's very popular in in customer experience is customer journey mapping. You know, when all the key stakeholders sit in the room and they map out what happens to the customer, how they pass through the organisation, where perhaps we're letting them down, what their expectations are, um, where there's opportunity to, to delight and, and make improvements, etc. It sounds to me as if yeah. someone like yourself would be absolutely fundamental in that environment, because every time you're looking to identify this, you know, let, let's say, for instance, this particular um, touch point is painful it may be that the organization then makes it less painful but breaches gdpr for instance i mean have you do you, do you think that would be a very useful role for for someone like yourself in in customer experience i think it would be i think it would be valuable and and the reason why i think that when you're mapping a customer experience if yeah. you had a, um, a a line there that talked about customer data yeah so track that customer data what 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 is it you know is it a name address and where is it going and what are you doing with it? And if you were to map that over your customer journey, that would allow you to understand what you can and can't do under the regulation. Brilliant. So it would be really healthy for the, I mean, obviously we look at things from a customer's perspective, but this is about trust from the customer's perspective. We said earlier, how much trust are they going to have in you, which is going to be an awful lot to do with how you manage their data. So a line in that journey map that says, what data you hold at which particular points, which laws it relates to, and what you can and can't do with it, may well change the shape of quite a number of organisations' journey map decision-making. Yeah, I think it will, and it should be seen as a benefit by the mm. business, and it should be seen as a benefit by the consumer as well. And, and the other thing to, to, to really add to this is that there are some new processes which come into place around GDPR which will affect... Uh, your work as a, uh, uh, in customer experience, and those are things. So, for example, there's something called uh, SARS, S-A-R-S, which stands for Subject Access Request. Yep. So you can write to a company and to send you all the information that they hold upon you. A, a company has 30 days to deliver that information, and they don't currently have to charge for that. For some organisations. That is a big process to go through because they may have multiple databases. They may have a lot of data on you. Bearing in mind that data includes any emails, any transactions that you've had with that organization. It's quite a big process. There are people out there who do nothing but advise on SARS processes. And it's very similar for, there's also a, a right to deletion as well which is another similar business process which requires policies, you know, controls in place and, and could take up quite a lot of resources for some organisations. But I'd imagine that they, they are both experiences that then if you can deliver well, it will increase yeah. the customer's confidence in the fact that you're looking after their data. I could imagine if I was yeah. to make a SARS um, request and the organisation said, I'm not even sure we know who you are, that would be a red flag to me if they then turn around and said 
we'll see what we can do. And all of a sudden I get, you know, two or three statements and the one or two emails back. And, you know, I say, well, actually, I've spoken to you on the phone. Then and yeah. so we haven't got any of that. All of a sudden, these are red flags for me to think just how well are they looking after my data when I'm when I'm not in, you know, if they're not looking after it, when I'm interacting with them. What on earth are they doing when I'm not interacting with them? So that's, that's a very good that's a very good example because it's it also gives you an indication of the kind of systems that they're applying. So, for example, the companies which have a single customer view within their business will be the ones who will find it the easiest to come back to you in fulfilling your SARS. It's likely to be the banks who, who run many legacy systems have a really hard time to understand what Christopher Brooks looks like on each of their 15 databases. Yeah. And can I just check with that, Simon? When we say um, subject access, if, you know, you and I have been talking, you know, if you and I worked for, a, let's say, a bank, we work for a bank, and the customer has raised an issue and you and I have been chatting about it on email, are they entitled to see the email exchange between you and I as well as any, any email that they've sent in? Right. So they can uh, they can see... Any email which has their their name or account number um, or something or a reference to them, I guess. It has to be something that indicates who they are yep. as an individual. All right. Um, and now there's another point in customer experience which we, uh, you know, it's kind of it's we call it the rocket fuel or the lifeblood, and that is the feedback survey. And I want to just you know dispel some myths in terms of what you can and can't do with feedback surveys, if I may. So let's say. Um, I have completed uh, an, a, a transaction with you and I have given you my consent to market to me. Um, does that then entitle you to send a survey to me requesting information about how I feel about um, our relationship? Well, when, when, when you ask, when you ask them uh, or send a request for the feedback, normally, well, in many cases, you're given the option to do it or, or don't do it. If, yeah. you're, if you decide as a customer to do it, then obviously that's, that's implied consent. Yeah. Uh, you really need to indicate somewhere in the consent form, consent statement or the privacy policy that you do ask for feedback on a regular basis and as a customer uh, expect to be asked to provide it and that you don't have to provide it if you don't want to. Okay, so okay, so I, I get that. I get the kind of by virtue of the fact that I'm completing it's implied consent. Obviously, it's if I've already yeah. ticked a box to say you can contact me, that makes life a lot easier. But it does mean then, if I haven't ticked a box and you send me a survey which is related to the contract principally, and you decide to to fill it out, well, nobody's in breach of anything here. That's absolutely fine. And then what you're saying is, if I then choose, if I then choose to use, I see that Simon Hinks has said, you know, really enjoyed the meal, um, would come again. Uh, can I? I can use that slug of data if I just say a customer said. Would that be okay? Yeah. If, yeah. If it's anonymized. Yeah. That would be fine. Fine. Okay. No identifiable. As long as you can't uh, relate it to an indiv individual. individual. And and then just on top of that, a couple, and and you know, not not trying to trip trip you up here. So these are a couple of things that just sparked into my mind. Um, yeah. One is if I in that survey say, let's say in a, in a feedback box, um, no, I'm really not happy with the service, and in fact, please don't contact me again. Is that then you giving? Am I giving you permission to opt me out, and you therefore have to you know go through your records and opt me out on on the database? Very interesting question. 
Okay, so this is called the hierarchy of consent here. Um, the hierarchy of consent says that the latest action is the most relevant action. So if the latest communication is a feedback form yep. to your customer and they say in the handwritten box, do not contact me again ever, then you must take that as, as non-consent. And you must suppress them. Or they are taking away communicate with you okay that's really interesting um now the, the other one um and, and, and again i don't know the answer to this one but i know it, it happens quite often you have um with a, a questionnaire you get it incentivized yeah. for filling it out now typically i mean you shouldn't for mrs purposes you shouldn't incentivize it with your own company's products or services because it's confirmation bias but let's say for instance i was a um uh, let's take our trouser company and i said if you complete this form uh, we'll put you into a prize draw to win some amazon vouchers where do i stand on this if i haven't actually given you consent to market to me in the first place and now you're providing me with a promotion um, am i in breach by asking you to to be a part of this yeah you are now right one of the things I saw quite early on was um, companies trying to incentivize consent. Yep. All oh, right. Okay. Yeah. And, and that is not right. You cannot do that. And and, and your example there is no. If if you haven't given them consent to write to you, um, then then that shouldn't happen. But if you bought the trousers, yeah, they can write to you about other trouser offers that they might have available. Mm -hmm. If it's all related with trousers. But I, I couldn't actually, you know, I, I get it. So there's, a, there's a clear distinction there that if I'm then saying to you, actually, if you were to fill out our survey, um, you could win a holiday abroad. And I've said in the first place, I don't want you to contact me about anything to do with marketing. Then I then yeah. I am in breach, even though I'm yeah. trying to get information. If I'd have just said to you, give me some feedback about the trousers, we'd have been all right. But it's by adding yeah. that extra promotion in there, which is marketing, then I've, I've, yeah. I've crossed the line, haven't I? Yeah. Yeah. I think it's really interesting. I think, you know, I think what you do in terms of your skills and your capability would be really valuable to a lot of organisations just to do kind of a health check on their customer experience. Because I don't think the customer experience world thinks enough about consent. It doesn't think about the implications of getting it wrong and therefore how you should manage that customer experience. And I also think they don't therefore appreciate the impact it has on my trust as a customer across everything else you do. Why would I trust you to deliver those goods on time when I can't even trust you to look after my data? So I think that, you know, they're all sort of interrelated. And I, I do hope that um, we see an uprising in that. Now, very quickly, just before we close, um, in the current climate, obviously, there's an awful lot of um, sort of knee-jerk reactions we're seeing uh, with CEOs and everyone else dropping emails to customers to say, just to let you know, you know, the experience you're used to in our branches is still the same and we'll carry on. I've seen some emails come into my inbox, Simon, from companies I, I'm, I, don't, I don't ever remember transacting with. Um, and if I did, it was a long time ago. I mean, if I've ticked a box back in, I don't know, 2003 and they've never con are they allowed to call me now? I do have received emails. You must be the worst person for them to send them to, I tell you. Yeah, yeah no, they, they, shouldn't, they shouldn't be contacting you. If you've not opted in to receive communications, and the likelihood is you haven't, because you've not heard from for several years, that they, they shouldn't be writing. I mean, why should you be interested yeah. in, in their message? If you said to them, I don't really care 
you know, I don't want to hear from you. I don't have a relationship. So do you do you yeah. do you think? And this is the cynical hat I'm putting on here. Do you think some are using it as an opportunity to be able to then say we've reconnected with that customer, or, or am I being far too cynical there? They're just they're just well, actually no, well, no. trying to act in the best well, interest doing. and just contacting everyone. Yeah. Well, what they're doing is they're using it as an excuse um, because a they believe that that there's a, a relaxation on the GDPR regulations under the under the virus circumstances and they're just trying to reactivate old customers yeah that's all they're trying to do yeah because I guess unless I unsubscribe to that message I'm not saying that's in I mean of course well I guess is that implied consent you know if I've opened the email and I've which they'll know I've opened the email but I've not said remove me in terms of your hierarchy of um uh, of opt-out. Right, okay, so, right. so th- there's a regulation called uh, PECA, Personal Electronic Communication Regulation, which applies to electronic communications, i.e. emails. And it's quite stringent in the fact that they can only email you if they have consent to email you. Now, this is as a consumer, not as a business. As long as it's to your personal email, yeah. They need consent to write to you, and they must also offer you in that email an unsubscribe option. Right. And if I don't opt into, if I don't tick the unsubscribe to therefore opt out, then it's in their their right to contact me again. Yes, it is. Yeah. Okay. I mean, I guess. Yeah. I guess you know. Back to the point about trust and customer experience. It, it doesn't sit very well with me as a consumer. If an organisation hasn't contacted me for years, even though I may have had some, you know, I might have opted in previously, but now when they are in a situation where they need my business, they do contact me. It just doesn't sit very well with me. It feels like we could have been talking a lot longer, you know, much earlier than this. Yeah, it does. And also the message that that comes out is um, I I see a lot of organisations just writing to say, uh, we've we've shut, we've closed the office down, but we're open for business. Very few have come back with some kind of positive action towards the virus. So I saw one yesterday from a, a data company that was right to say the offices are closed, we're working from home. And by the way, if you're doing a marketing or or a communication to to support the NHS or key workers will allow you to have the data at a 30% discount and will cover the print cost. So so they were using it as like a, a, a real benefit. Um, and I thought that was quite a nice positive message. Mm-hmm. I mean, I, I know that's kind of a charitable thing. Does that, does that fall foul of I've not asked to receive offers and services or would they say that's legitimate interest given the current crisis? The, the current crisis hasn't changed anything with regards to GDPR, they should sure. still be... You should still be adhering and being good governors with it. The, the ICO have been very clear. It's not the Wild West out there sure. uh, with regards to GDPR. You still have to comply to the regulations. But to be perfectly honest, the reality is people are beginning to knock it down on their list of priorities. And, um, and you, you are going to see a lot of organisations just ignoring it when it comes to emails and um, let's but let's remember that um, this virus will eventually go away and um, and there may be opportunities later on in the year when these organizations will will be investigated 
by the ICO. Yeah, yeah. Well, I guess with um, individuals like you out there, Simon, they uh, there's very little chance they're going to get away with it. So uh, I tell you what, um, I, I've really enjoyed this conversation. I'm going to call this uh, this um, episode to a close. But I think it will be useful if we perhaps did another one on B2B. If that's okay, because I know the rules yeah. are slightly different yeah. there, and I, I imagine there's a lot of people yeah. who are, mar- you know, running marketing campaigns and customer experience for business-to-business brands. So I think that'll be useful to pick up again. But uh, I've really enjoyed it. I've certainly learned a lot. I think a lot of people have learned it to learn a lot from listening in. Um, do you want to just give me your email uh, address live, and then obviously if anyone has any questions, is it okay if they just pop them over to you? Yeah, that's fine. So yeah, thank you very much, Chris, for asking me. So. So I'm Simon Hinks from PMA Limited, and my email address is simon at p-m-a.co.uk. Great. Thank you very much. And I think when we uh, send the uh, podcast out to our our usual um, subscription list, we'll make sure we include that there for them. It's been fascinating. Honestly, it's it's a really interesting topic. And I think one that if customer experience professionals invested more time in, they would find that it has benefit in all the other areas of their customer experience in terms of how much their customers trust them. So uh, I'll sign off here. Simon, thank you so much for your time. Uh, I wish you well and um, hope our paths cross uh, many times in the future. Thank you very much, Christopher. So that was incredibly insightful. Um, I'm very grateful to Simon Hinks from PMA for joining us there. Um, The next episode of CX Superheroes sees us travel to Monaco uh, to meet a man who is um, spending time understanding what customer experiences billionaires of the world look for. Um, I interviewed... Um, Professor Dr. Phil Klaus recently to discover there's a lot more in common between the billionaires and the everyday man when it comes to customer experience than you may think. So please join us for that one. For now, and from CX Superheroes, I thank you very much and say goodbye.